Hey friends, my name is Ryan Hughley. I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I want to welcome you to our podcast. We're working to build a community position to experience God in daily life. Our weekly teaching is one piece of that work. So as you listen to this week's message, my prayer is that you would hear God inviting you to respond to his love and his desire for you. For more information, you can visit ridgeline.church. Well, I know some of you are here uh, for the first time, and so I kind of want to just catch you up because we're in the middle of a extended teaching series through the fall uh, that we've called Positioned for Change. And, and really what it is that we're after, not just in this series, but really what we're after as a church is we're trying to learn, we're on this new journey together, really trying to learn how do we position our lives to actually experience transforming relationship with Jesus which is experientially and objectively different than what most of us have probably experienced up to this point, which is like church is this, we come together for this on Sundays, we sing some songs, we listen to a sermon, we have some degree of belief that anchors us, but if we were to really be asked, does what you experience with Jesus feel like a relationship? Most of us who are honest would say, oftentimes, no, we can't see him. Most of us don't hear them very often. We tend to go through life, even though there is nowhere we go that God is not, we tend to go through life virtually blind to his movement in and around us. And so as a result, we are trying to learn because we we see something so much more than that promised to us in scripture. And so we're, we're trying to learn how do we position our lives to experience that. And that comes out of this very deep conviction that I have, that more and more that we have, which is that in order to experience that kind of relationship with God, our lives have to be positioned appropriately. And so think about it like, uh, think about it like catching a wave, okay? In order to catch a wave, your bollocks, let's say that you're, I think, can't remember if I've said this or not, like um, surfing is a, has been a big part of like my family history. Unfortunately, I've not surfed. I've boogie board, which is like the lame version. And uh, no one has ever been like, oh, I'm a boogie boarder, right? Like you kind of keep that on the DL. <laughs> I'm not pro, okay? I'm not bragging about how good I am at boogie boarding, though I am pretty effective. Uh, but let's say you're going to catch a wave. You have to be properly, like I, I can tell you right now, you're not going to catch that wave from the shore, right? And, and the truth is uh, there's a lot that goes into catching a wave, And it has everything to do with, am I properly positioned? But you don't control the wave. You don't make the wave come. And if you're not in the right position, that wave uh, will crush you. But we have to, so in order to, to, to really be a part of this movement of God in our lives, we have to have lives that are properly positioned. And that is the reason that God has given us various spiritual practices. Or maybe you prefer the term spiritual disciplines. But oftentimes what happens uh, amongst people of faith like us is we make the practice an end to itself. And so the win is I read my Bible today. Or the win is I prayed today. Or the win is I went to church today. But the practice is not an end. It's a means to relationship with Jesus. They position us to experience God in our day-to-day lives. And so that's what we're after. How do we learn 
to adopt a lifestyle? How do we learn to adopt practices in our lives that appropriately and properly and effectively position us to experience transforming relationship with Jesus? That's what we're after. And so broadly speaking, we've got these three positions that we're learning more and more to incorporate or really to orient our lives around. They are formative friendship, which we spent a few weeks talking about already. Sitting with God, which is something that we're going to talk about and start talking about in just a couple of weeks. And then this topic that we're on right now, which is weekly worship. For thousands of years, Christians have been coming together like this on Sunday mornings in recognition and remembrance of the first resurrection of Jesus on on Easter morning. And so we come together to remember that. And, And oftentimes, the problem that we've sort of identified is that we have this tendency not to value this time to the degree that we should. And that's manifested by how easily it is for, for so many of us to just be like, eh, I'm going to skip church this week. It seems like such a small thing. And, and, and obviously, like, this is not the only thing that matters when it comes to relationship with Jesus. But this is a, a special and a unique time in which God moves in ways that he does not elsewhere. And so we've been looking at these three reasons why we gather together for worship. First of all, we've already seen that it protects us. It protects our faith. Secondly, last week, we talked about how it provokes us to a more Jesus-like life. And then this morning, we're going to talk about how this time is meant to encourage us. And so if you think about, uh, let me just read this verse over you. So we've been, uh, for the last three weeks, we've been in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23, or 24 and 25, Uh, And it says this, let us watch out for one another. That's the protection piece. To provoke love and good works. That's the Jesus-like life. Not neglecting to gather together. So this physical gathering that we do on Sundays is at the very center of all of these three things. And so not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing. Here it is, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, there is a, uh, a particular type of encouragement that the author of Hebrews has in mind here. And we know that because of verse 23. Uh, We have not spent much time in that, but let me just read this over you. Uh, He says, uh, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. The encouragement that is talked about in verse 25, is directly connected to that. It's, we're to, it's, this time is meant to encourage us in a way that helps us hold on to our hope in God when life is hard. And if you think about it, this probably won't be like any kind of great mental exercise for you, but if you think about the last couple of years, for many of us, it has been uniquely hard to hold on to our hope in God. And so just, just think about what the last couple of years has been for us. It has been um, disruptive to almost every aspect of life, right? So even if, unlike Kay, you don't work in medicine, the pandemic, our political climate, all of the social unrest that we have experienced over the last two years, it has been an intensely disruptive time. And as a result, many of us have lived the last couple of years with varying amounts of fear, with a high degree of uncertainty. Remember when we thought like if we just stayed home for two weeks, we'd flatten the curve and this would be over? That was two years ago. 
Think about the reality. That's insane. So much uncertainty of going, oh, maybe this will be over by summer. Huh? Or never. That's pretty much what I've settled into. We live in The Walking Dead. That's where we're at now. I've been watching all 12 episodes or all 12 seasons. I am prepared. I hope you are as well. But that's the future. Glad you could be encouraged this morning. But everything that we've seen, everything we've been through, man, think about how it has just filled us with these questions, unsettling questions about God. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've wondered, like, God, where are you in this? Why don't you just stop this? I don't know how many times Tammy and I had some version of that conversation in our kitchen. Why doesn't God just put an end to this? Why doesn't he just stop this? Those are unsettling questions that I don't know the answer to. So it's just been an intensely disruptive time. But it's also been very disorienting. And I'll tell you what, what has been so disorienting for me is it has been virtually impossible for me to reconcile the disconnect between what I read from Jesus in the Gospels and what I see coming out of the vast majority of Christianity in our culture. It is qualitatively different. And I don't know, there's just been days where I'm like, I don't know what to do with that. And I don't know if I want to be called a Christian anymore because of what that has come to mean in so many circles. And so it's just been intensely disruptive. It has been very disorienting. And then compounding the problem has been the loss of this time. Remember the months that we could not gather together like this. And maybe you were one of the faithful few who like really held on to that YouTube stream. But I'm like, it's okay for you to be honest. I know most of you weren't watching it all of the time. I tracked the YouTube numbers, they were depressing. And I get it. I recorded those sermons by myself to my phone. It was depressing for me. And so we lost this time that as we're going to see this morning, God means to be intensely encouraging, particularly in these seasons that are disruptive and disorienting for us. And so this morning, I just want to call this installment of this series, Encourage Me. Uh, We had week one was watch my back. Then last week was about helping us learn to live a more Jesus-like life. And this week, I want to talk about this theme of encouragement. So again, back in verse 25, uh, the writer says, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but, and this is the important phrase, encouraging each other. And so I really want to, I want to, do a bit of a deep dive into this word encouraging because it's an important word that, that truthfully this entire section of this verse hangs on. Now this word encouraging comes from uh, an important Greek word. It's the word parakaleo. It's used 109 times in the New Testament. And it's actually made up of two different Greek words that are put together, para and kaleo. Now the word para means uh, beside or alongside, and the word kaleo means to call or to summon. And so in the sense that it's being used here in Hebrews, it speaks of earnestly supporting or encouraging a response or an action. So something in this word, parakaleo, is what we are 
called to experience and also to be a part of when we gather together like this. There's something about calling people alongside that is what is intended in our understanding of encouraging one another. And so I think to understand how how we do that and what that looks like, we need to think about encouragement's antithesis, which would be discouragement. Now, I think we all have a, a, a sense of what it feels like to be discouraged, but I wonder if you've ever stopped to think about emotionally and mentally what's happening when we're discouraged. We're familiar with the feeling. It's awful, right? It's just being discouraged. It's like it, it can in, incorporate depression and anxiety. It can feel like you're moving through mud. You have so little uh, desire to do very much of anything, But what's really happening there, and it's all bound up in the word discouragement, is it literally means to lose courage or confidence in someone or something. And so when we think about, again, the context that holds these verses together, which we read in verse 23, let me read this again. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. So to be discouraged means we are losing hope in who God is and what he has promised to do. And so in, in a very real way, that's a pretty accurate description of the experience that the vast majority of us have had over the last couple of years. Intense discouragement where we have lost confidence or we have lost courage that God is who he says he is and that he is doing and will do everything that he has promised. And so when I think about this word parakaleo, to call alongside, I think about virtually every hike that we have been on as a family. Um, What happens every single time that we go on a hike of of any difficulty is that by and large, uh, Ava stays with Tammy and I and we're walking along and my boys are like a mile behind us because they're talking about Fortnite or Minecraft or something else that is like voodoo to me and I don't understand. (laughs) Lincoln goes, woohoo! And so, so about a million and a half times on every hike, I have to go, boys, come on, keep up, come up here with us. And I think about that because I think that what God intends for us when we come together like this or in our squads or at a meetup or we run into one another in the community, but specifically when we come together like this, it is commonplace for us when we are in a season of discouragement that we are like lagging behind in our faith. Our faith is not strong. Our hope is not strong. We don't feel anchored. We're filled with doubt. We're filled with questions. We're filled with uncertainty. All of that is bound up in discouragement. And it's like we're lagging behind on a hike. And what we need is someone who is in a different place from us, who is holding on to hope, is holding on to faith to say, hey, Come, come up here alongside with me. Come back to what is actually true about God. There's a sense in which that's what is in, is, should be in our minds when we think about encouragement, that we are inviting people to come up to what is true, to come alongside us again to what is true about God. And so this week, as I was thinking and praying about this, I was trying to think like, how, how do we break down in a practical sense, in a way that's helpful to us, because we're like called to do some stuff here, not just leave thinking, I should be encouraged. We're supposed, we're called to encourage one another. So how do we do that? And so I, I thought like, you know what? I'm going to send out a text to like 10 or 15 people in our church, which I did. And I'm going to ask them, hey, when you think about times in your life when you have been encouraged, 
by someone, which hopefully everybody in here at least once in their life has been encouraged by someone. When you think about a time in your life that you've been encouraged by someone, um, what are the traits that come to mind for you when you think about that? Now, here's what I expected to get back. I expected to get back a bunch of text messages from people that were like, oh, well, when people say this, or when people remind me of that, but I expected to get a lot of responses about people doing particular things that then they felt encouraged by. Does that make sense? Because when we think about encouragement, I think what comes into our mind is nice words we say to someone to lift their spirit, right? Like when you think about encourage someone, I would guess 10 out of 10 of us think, well, we speak words to encourage people. But here's what's so interesting. Almost every single response that I got had nothing to do with words. Of this 10 or 15 people, I think there was maybe one or two reference, references to something that someone did or said. Every single one was a description of a way that a person had been with them in their discouragement. And I don't know about you, but I find that fascinating. Because oftentimes, it's like when I think about, like when, when we talk about or think about encouragement as Christians, we're always thinking about like, sharing verses with people, speaking truth to people. It's all, all very like, do, 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 say, say, say. And it's one of the things that intimidates us sometimes. Like how, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you are like, I'm, I'm hesitant to enter into certain situations because I don't know if I'll know what to say. I want to continue to stress for you, what you say matters so much less than the way you are with someone who is discouraged. People don't remember what you say, by and large. They remember the way that you make them feel. And so, when we think about how to actually put this in, in, into practice, I think that we should focus our attention more on the way that we are with people. So, so here's what I have for you this morning. I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about how to be, for a few minutes, a discouraging presence, and then I want to talk about how to be an encouraging presence, okay? So we'll start on the negative end, because I think it's important that we start there, that we see that there are common things that we all do, even that are well-intended, but they accomplish the opposite of what it is that we're after, okay? So we'll start with how to be a discouraging presence, and then we'll close with how to be an encouraging presence. All right, so first up, how to be a discouraging presence. Excited about this? It's going to be good. For all my negative Nancys in the room, you'll love this part, okay? How to be a discouraging presence. Here's the first thing. Quickest way, ready? And it's so common with Christians. Weaponize scripture. Weaponize, that got the biggest amen. I don't know how I feel about that. But here's what that is an indication of. It's an indication of how common that is. That by and large, my guess is the majority of us have experienced a time, maybe even well-intentioned, where another professing follower of Jesus weaponized scripture against us. And I think the way that we think about that, we think about weaponizing scripture as like people who, like, uh, here's an obvious example would be like uh, the, the methods of Westboro Baptist Church. If you're not familiar with them, their church website is godhatesfags.com. That's their URL. And they stand outside of funerals for um, gay, lesbian, and transgender people 
whose families are in grief and mourning, and they picket and protest and they scream and they yell, and they have signs that are covered with scripture. Now, we think of weaponizing scripture and we think of that, which, in case you're not tracking with my tone, is objectively evil. Amen? Yeah. Just want to be clear. I don't want to assume if some of you are like, all right, is that what we're doing? It's not what we're doing. Just to be super clear. (laughs) Opposite, opposite. (laughs) But listen, here's the thing. That's That's not the only way that scripture gets weaponized. I think the most common way that scripture is weaponized is when we, when well-intentioned Christians use it to tamp down the emotions that are uncomfortable that we experience as human beings. And I'll give you an example of this. A few years ago, Pastor Tyler tragically lost his older sister, Cameo, to cancer. She was 40 years old, uh, left behind young children, and a husband, and as you can imagine, that was a devastating experience for him, the way that it would be for any of us. And unfortunately, I was out of town uh, when this happened. I believe I was at a funeral for another friend. We had a real rough couple of months in there. I was out of town at the funeral of a friend. Uh, Cameo passed away, and uh, because I wasn't there, one of the other leaders, elders in our church, who was an older gentleman, and I, again, benefit of the doubt, says well-intentioned, went over to Tyler's house to sit with him, but then he took 1 Thessalonians 4.13 and unintentionally weaponized it against Tyler. Because what he said to him was, as Tyler was, like, I mean, if you guys know Tyler, he cries during the announcements, okay? Like, he is a feeler. So when he is in actual grief, you can do the math on what that's like. Like, He was, as I would think the majority of us that are healthy, would be like a bawling puddle of tears. And so this man came into this, and he took 1 Thessalonians 4.13, and he said, hey, 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 don't forget, we do not grieve as those who are without hope. Which sounds really spiritual, because he even quoted it. He didn't even have to look it up. It sounds so spiritual. But here's what that did. It, it, I would argue, unintentionally again, it uses shame to change the way that a person is feeling. And it conveys, hey, the, what you are feeling or the way you're expressing that feeling is bad. It's out of step with who you are as a Christian. We do not grieve as those who are without hope. So you're grieving wrongly. And that, just think about how destructive, like you're already feeling like trash and sad and depressed and horrible. And then on top of it, you get like Jesus juked in this way that makes you feel even more confused and worse. And that is just so commonplace. So I would actually like, I, man, I love the Bible. I hope, like if you know me, you know, like I've given my life to teaching the Bible. I'm like a big time Bible person. And I would warn you to be very careful when you are interacting with someone in a a season of discouragement, be very careful how you use the Bible. The Bible is good and it is from God. And historically, it has been used to start wars, to justify racism, to suppress people, and to cause woundedness and hurt and pain. Like The Bible can be used for all that. And even if we are well-intentioned, 
we can use it to like tamp down and say the way you're feeling is bad. Is it? Jesus cried when he lost a friend. Why can't we? Jesus even knew I'm about to raise this sucker from the dead in like 13 seconds. And he still cried. So if you're sad when you lose someone and someone tells you you shouldn't be grieving the way you're grieving because we don't grieve as those who are without hope, don't punch them in the nose. But if you feel like it, I get it. That's all I'm saying. And the way you feel in response to that is justifiable because it's wrong. Scripture has been weaponized against you. And so the quickest way for us to be a discouraging presence to others is to weaponize scripture against them. A second one would be to diminish experience. Diminish experience in so many ways. And I think this is even more true of Christians than it is non-Christians. We live in a culture of toxic positivity. You familiar with that phrase? More and more, even secular writing and research is coming on coming out about the effects of toxic positivity. That is like, everything's good. Everything's fine. I know like millions of people are dying of COVID, but it's good. Everything's great. Everything's fine. And some like churches are filled with people, like just bobbleheads, like everything's great. No, I'm good. Things are not good. There's so much broken in our world. Not everything is great. Not everything is good. God is great. God is good. Life sucks like 95% of the time, amen? And it's like, so this toxic positivity is a type of positivity that is rooted in, in something that is not reality. And so we, diminish, we do this when someone is in a season of discouragement, okay? So something, I had an interaction with a friend like, that went like this this week. Going through a very difficult time, and my friend said, uh, I, like, I know it could be so much worse. <laughs> can I just tell you, like, it can always be so much worse, right? But do you know that in saying that, we are diminishing our own experience? Or when someone is in a season of discouragement and you say to them, hey, I mean, it could be so much worse. You're like, yep, it could. It doesn't change that this hurts right now. Or that I'm feeling discouraged right now. Once again, it just uses shame to try to control. And that shame just adds weight to already weary shoulders. And so we're not going to weaponize scripture. We don't want to diminish experience. And then the third way to be a discouraging presence is to always try to rescue. Always try to rescue. This is probably, if I think about almost every message I've ever heard on marriage or every marriage book or seminar, this is always the thing, by and large, that wives are harping on their husbands for. I don't need you to fix anything. I just want you to listen, right? Anybody ever had that experience? Can you just, Nolan, you've had that experience? You've been, you've been told that. Yeah, on a number of occasions. Yeah, I've been there for some of them. <laughs> but, but again, it's well-intentioned, but we want to rescue. Now, there's a couple of problems with this. Uh, the first is, oftentimes, that's born out of our own discomfort. It's not just, I want you to feel better. It's, I don't like that this makes me feel uncomfortable, so I need to solve this for you so you're good so I can be good. So that's a problem. But here's the, here's the even bigger thing. When we are constantly trying to rescue people out of their problems, we actually rob people 
of feeling Jesus' power and presence when we rush to fix their problem. You know, like sometimes God lets us, sometimes the Holy Spirit even leads us into a wilderness season for a purpose, to take us deeper into trust, deeper into surrender, deeper into who he is. And if we're constantly trying to rescue people out of every difficulty that they go through, we rob them of of the experience of Jesus' power and presence with them in the midst of that. So there's nothing wrong with helping and serving, but we always have to be checking our motives because in general, I've found many of us would attest to that. If you're, if you're discouraged and trying to talk to somebody about it, them trying to solve your problem isn't helpful. You just want someone to listen. And so if we're not careful, we can easily end up being a discouraging presence to, to one another. And we do this when we weaponize scripture, diminish experience, or when we constantly try to rescue. So let's end on a positive note and talk about how can we actually be an encouraging presence, okay? So again, I think you'll notice in here, this is gonna have nothing to do with what to say, okay? This isn't how to speak encouraging words to other people. This is how can we be an encouraging presence in the way that God intends for us. The first, number one is just be present. Be present which sounds so simple and is so hard. Like if you just had this thing where you're like, oh, I haven't been paying attention for the last couple of minutes. Case in point. It's real hard for us to just be present. I'm gonna choose to believe that all of you that just laugh, you were not paying attention for the last five minutes. Listen, we live in by far the most distracted age in the history of humanity. We are such, such distracted people. And as a result, one of the greatest ways to convey our care to another person is to give them our undivided attention, which is not an easy thing to do. It's a muscle. It's something that has to be cultivated. But one of the greatest ways that we can be an encouraging presence is when we are with someone that is discouraged is to just be present with them in that. Okay, that's the first thing. Number two is listen deeply. Listen deeply. Um, If you've been at Ridgeline for a while, you've probably heard me reference this stat. If you were here through, uh, especially when we talked about formative friendship, but a study was done and over 70% of Americans report that they have no one that they feel like they can talk to. That's a lot of people. And the way that I have thought about that exclusively up to this point has been, well, there's just like over 70% of Americans don't have any friends that uh, they can sit and have an honest conversation with. But this week I started to think about it a little bit differently. And I wonder if the issue is not just a lack of relationship, but that, that we really can't get people to listen to us. That it's not that we don't have anyone to be physically in front of us and to receive the words that come out of our face, but that it's just so hard for us And that so few of us have anyone in our life that we really are confident. If I have something I need to open up and talk about, they will genuinely sit and listen to me. Not listen and tweet, not listen and Instagram, not listen and check the news, not listen and text, but just actually listen to what I'm saying. That's what I love about my therapist. I literally pay her. She just sits and listens to me. It's a powerful, I I think that that's like 95% of the power of therapy 
Is someone just listening as I babble? It's had a profound impact in my life. I would invite you to it. There is tremendous power when we are just listened to. So we want to be present. We want to listen deeply. And then thirdly, and you'll notice these are connected to the discouraging ones, but third, we want to welcome all emotions. Man, when someone is, in, is discouraged, just like let, them, let, them, let it out. Again, I'm always encouraging us, like read the Psalms, because in the Psalms, we see the full array of human emotion. We see stuff that like, if you prayed some of the stuff in the Psalms in a prayer meeting, you're going to get kicked out of a lot of prayer meetings. If you start to call for the death of your enemies and the like, people are like, hey, maybe just take it down a little. You're, on, you're too honest with God, okay? It's too much. But we see in the Psalms the full array of human emotion. So why is it that we have spent so much time as Christians policing people's emotions? Because that's what's happened. We have spent so much energy policing emotion rather than honoring them for what they are, which is an opportunity to experience the care of Christ. Let someone be angry. Let them be sad. Let them be depressed. Let them verbalize that they're anxious and don't quote Philippians 4 at them. Just let that be. And let that be sacred space as those words are honestly spoken. Let that be a space that the Spirit of God can invade and provide care to that person. And he wants to do that through your presence with them. So if I was going to take this and boil this down to the third reason why this time matters for us so much, it would be this big idea. Weekly worship uh, refreshes my confidence in Christ. That's why we do this every single week. Because every single week, stuff happens that tests our confidence in Christ, that tries it, that weakens it, that damages it. And so every single week, we come back in here and we just pray, God, would you just refresh my confidence in who you are and what you're doing? And there is a profound sense in which this time does it in a way that nothing else does. And so obviously when we sing, it has that effect. When we hear people's stories, it has that effect. Lord willing, the sermon has that effect in our lives. But the truth is, it also happens by each of us determining, I'm going to be an encouraging presence. I'm not going to weaponize scripture. I'm not going to diminish experience. I'm not going to try to rescue. Instead, I'm going to be present. I'm going to listen deeply. And I'm just going to welcome emotion and trust that the spirit of God, I know this is crazy, but that the spirit of God can actually work in the midst of that. That he doesn't need us. He's not like recruiting many messiahs. We had a messiah. We have a messiah. He dealt with what needed to be dealt with once and for all and in a very real way brought heaven to earth, and now the Spirit of God is working in a fresh way, and we are invited to participate in that by being an encouraging presence to one another. And so by God's grace and with the spirits of help, let's pray that he would help us to be that, and then we'll do some Q&A, all right? Holy Spirit, we, we ask you for help. We thank you for your word and the way that it conveys to us who you are, conveys your heart, conveys your mind, that it conveys your love and your compassion, your, your posture toward us. 
And I thank you, Lord, that it gives us clarity on how you would have us to live. And it gives us clarity regarding why this time of weekly worship is so, so, so important. And so, Lord, I, I do just pray that you would use these times that we gather to encourage us, to refresh our confidence in who you are and what you're doing. Help us to be an encouraging presence to one another. I pray that that would be the culture that you would form in our church, that we would be present with one another and to you, that we would listen deeply to one another and to you. Lord, we need your help with that. We thank you that you welcome our thoughts, our fears, our doubts, our worries, our emotions. And so, Lord, I pray that we would continue to be an honest people with one another and with you. In Jesus' name, amen.